Can I pray with you guys for a minute or two as we look into God's Word together? Father, it's just, uh, it's wonderful because so many of the things we've sung today, the scriptures we've read just dovetail so readily with what we're going to talk about. And so as we, as we look into your Word, we're just so grateful for how it was written a long time ago, and yet it's powerfully present and available to us today, that it's impactful to us today. And as we seek to understand this, as we seek to not just understand your word, which you tell us you'll help us with, we pray that we would have the courage to say, I'm going to allow the spirit of God to apply this in my life. Because it's kind of empty to just know about it, but not to say, allow it to shape us and form us. So we invite you to do that. And in the process of all of this, would you just be exalted as we've been singing about again. And we pray these things, we welcome these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to talk today about stuff. You see stuff. We want stuff. We buy stuff. We insure stuff. We go into debt for stuff. We compare our stuff with other people's stuff. We buy bigger stuff. The Bible has a lot to say about stuff, where stuff comes from, what the purpose of stuff is, who owns the stuff, and what our perspective on stuff ought to be. And even though stuff is temporal and inanimate and often ends up in the landfill, it seems to have this kind of mystical power over us. Think about a two-year-old with me. In my experience, two of the favorite world words of two-year-olds are no and mine. And to an adult, when you're looking at this, it seems rather ironic when the two-year-old clings to whatever it is and says mine, because the reality is the two-year-old didn't earn any of that stuff. That stuff was given to them. They can't even take care of it very well. They don't even really put it away. Typically, it could be taken from them in an instant. And in the reality is the stuff is not really theirs at all. It's an illusion for the two-year-old, but it's a very powerful illusion. And two-year-olds are really kind of funny that way. But of course, we adults, we're not like those two-year-olds at all, are we? I haven't been to Hearst Castle, haven't been there, but I've read a little bit about it. And William Randolph Hearst built this huge thing on the West Coast in California. William Randolph Hearst was a stuffaholic. 
And you can tour through this place, and in there there's 3,500-year-old Egyptian statues and tapestries that run the length of huge walls. There's hand-carved ceilings. There's precious works of art from all over the world. And he built this house, this castle, to hold it all. It has 165 rooms. It's 77,000 square feet. To give you an idea, all the rooms in this church total 19,000 square feet. And see, he collected stuff for 88 years. And then you know what he did? He died. Rather short-sighted of him. How dare he die? And now people go through tours of the place by the thousands, and everybody that goes in there says this, wow, this guy had a lot of stuff. And people go through life, and they get a lot of stuff, and they die. And it all goes to someone else, and sometimes, sadly, the kids argue over it, and success and identity are measured by it, and husbands and wives will often argue about stuff more than anything else. Whose stuff is it? Is it my stuff? Is my stuff my stuff? Or is my stuff God's stuff? And I know you're all thinking it's getting kind of stuffy in here. (laughs) So we're going to start a little three-part series today called Right on the Money. And it comes from that expression, that's right on the money. And we're going to look at a time in Scripture where people were freed up from this fixation that many people, especially in our culture, but really in in our world, have this fixation we have on stuff. And so if you have your Bible or your device, turn with me to 1 Chronicles. Now that, somebody goes, where's that? It's one of the historic books about the nation of Israel. It's about 40% of the way through the Older Testament. And so you go through the first five books and Joshua and Judges and 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, you'll come to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 verses 1 to 20. And we're going to be, rather than reading it all at one time, we're going to be reading verses of this passage as we talk through. So keep your Bible open, keep your device open as we look at this passage. And as we we do look at this passage, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let me set the context for this a little bit. Okay, so at this time in history, in the history of Israel. David is the king of Israel. Greatest king that they ever had, ever will have. He started out life as a shepherd boy, looking after his father's flocks. Probably did not have a lot of stuff. But as king, he has huge resources. And one day he's sitting in his rather grand house, a palace, It's been remodeled, it's really upscale, it's in a great neighborhood in Jerusalem. He's got a three-chariot garage for whenever he wants to use it. And he's thinking to himself, you know, I live in this wonderful home, and there's no really appropriate place in all of Israel where people can go to worship God. We have a tent, it's called the tabernacle. 
And it's pretty nice, but it is just a tent for when we were a nomadic body of people before we landed in the land of Israel. When you see all the news reports, by the way, of stuff going on, remember their time in Israel started a long, 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 long time ago. But David said, hey, you know, um, there's just a tent for God. I think we should build a temple, a spectacular building, one of the wonders of the world. And I would be willing to use my stuff to serve and honor God in this way, to build a temple where people would walk in and they would say, wow, not because they were impressed by some mere human being, but because the building would remind them of the goodness and greatness and majesty of God. And by the way, that's one of the reasons we care for this church facility and invest in it. It's not just for the pure expediency of using it so that we have a place to do stuff, but how we care for the facility says something about what we believe about God. It says something about what we believe about God. Now, David is all prepared to do this, but God says, hey, appreciate the gesture, David, but I'm not going to let you build the temple because you've been a warrior all your life from a teenager, and there's been a lot of violence in your life, and so I'm not going to let you build the temple for me. Your son Solomon, the next king of Israel, he will build the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but I might have been tempted at that point to respond by sulking a little bit. To take my, well, God, if you're not going to let me lead this project, I'm going to take my marbles and go home. But David says, even though I can't lead the way in building this beautiful temple to worship our God in, what I can do is I can lead the way in giving. So maybe, I don't know how long you've been part of this church, but before this, I came here, this church was built, and all the time I've been here, we've been fixing this and upgrading that and expanding this and all kinds of things. So maybe you weren't on the building committee. Maybe you weren't involved in making those kind of decisions. Maybe you didn't pick the kind of plants or the color of the carpet. But maybe like David, you can lead the way in giving. And David, we're going to find in this passage, gives massive resources to fund a project he will never lead, to build a facility in which he will never worship. And he gives before he dies so he can see the outcome and begin to see the outcome of his gift. And some people will save all their resources only to be given away after they die, and they don't see any of the results. Let me just give you a little aside that comes off of that. Do you have a will? Because every responsible follower of Jesus Christ should have a will. Because God, we're going to discover in this series, calls on us to manage the things that he's put into our life well. To manage them wisely. To enjoy them, for sure and to appreciate them, and to have some fun with them, all those kinds of things. But he calls on us to manage them well, and part of that is to have a will. And in that will, I believe, there should always be a generous, high percentage final offering that goes to the work of God. 
And so David is super stoked about this, and he calls all of the people of the nation together, and they start to come to Jerusalem. He calls this massive meeting, and this is the background as we begin reading in verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. All of these in large qualities. This was a spectacular structure. Spectacular. Besides in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple. And then verse 5, for the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord. Who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord today? Who as an act of worship, the leader of the nation says, is willing to give like this? Now this is incredibly unusual. If you know anything about history, when you had a king like David who had absolute power, and of course there's people like that in our world today, that have power to say, this is going to happen and it does, or that's not going to happen and it won't, and this person's going to die, and they do. But in those days particularly, a king had absolute power. And for him to do what he did was extremely unusual, really unheard of. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from all the other ways that people try to make themselves acceptable to their idea of God. Well, if I get this bill for how much I'm supposed to give, that will somehow buy my way into God's good graces. This is not the way of biblical believers. The way of biblical believers that God calls on is voluntary giving. He wants you to experience the incredible joy of being a voluntary, sacrificial, generous giver. In Egypt, for example, you would never hear the Pharaoh saying, who of you is willing to help offer yourselves to help build my next pyramid scheme? Or pyramid, as it were. No, Pharaoh would have said, you know who's willing to do what I want done? You are. And you are, and you are, and you are. I'm conscripting all of you. I'm taking the resources from you that I want to build the building that I want built. In those days, if you were king, and to some people that still are kind of king-like in our world, you didn't ask. You took. David doesn't take. David asks. Because David understands that the plan of our God, the God of the Bible, is that he wants to build a community that is radically different. That begins to understand the incredible joy that comes to be a sacrificial, generous giver. It's such an important part, such a cool part 
of walking with Jesus. Because stuff really only means something when it's given with a joyful heart. And so David goes way out on a limb here, asking who's willing to give? Who as an act of worship, of consecration is willing to say, God, I love you with all my heart. And I trust you with all my heart. And so I'm going to give generously. There could have been an incredibly long, awkward silence when he said that. But all of a sudden, somebody steps forward and says, I'll give. And somebody else steps forward. And somebody else steps forward. It says in verse 6, Then the leaders of families, the officials of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the Lord's work, the king's work rather, gave willingly. Willingly. And there's an explosion in the community of generosity on the part of the other leaders in the kingdom of Israel. They are leading the way. And I want to call on the leaders of our church to be the first people to give, to set the example, and to watch the rest of the people of our church respond. This is the way it's supposed to, we, are, we are called to be, that the leaders give first and the people respond as well. And we're going to see that in just a moment in this passage. And so David says, and I say to the leaders in our church, let's be the first ones to give and to chart the path. Then it says in verse 9, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also greatly rejoiced. Then over to verse 17, which says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I see with joy how willingly your people, because the rest of the crowd responds to how your people who are here have given to you, O Lord God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep their, this, keep Keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And the thing you notice over and over again in these verses is they gave willingly, they gave voluntarily, they gave freely, they gave with their whole hearts, and it was an indication of their loyalty to God. It says in verse 18, the fact that I love you, the fact that I trust you. This is reiterated, this kind of giving in the Newer Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says, each person should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word that Paul use, uses in the Newer Testament there, uh, it's transliterated from the Greek into the English hilarion from which we get our word hilarious. And really kind of what he's saying is there ought to be a moment of worship in the scripture that has hilarity attached to it as people are giving. See, some people are under the mistaken impression that this is about paying bills. It's not. It's about, as I said, it's saying, I am, I'm consecrating myself to you, Lord. 
I'm worshiping you. I love you. I trust you. And as an act of worship, as an act of having lots of fun, I'm going to give generously and with joy. I read this somewhere. If you're in our church, the person said, for, our, for, for the first time, and you're just exploring God, not even sure if God exists, you probably can't give with a hilarious, hilarious spirit. So just, just feel free to let the plate pass on by in front of you. And if it's the second time you're here, and, and you still don't even know if there's a God, and this is not your church, you probably can't give with that hilarious spirit. So again, just feel free to let it go by. But if it's your third time here, fake it. <laughs> now, of course, I'm, I'm just joking there, right? But for followers of Christ, for people that are part of this church, if I wait until I feel like it, I may never feel like it. And sometimes I just need to start by being obedient and praying and say, God, you know, in my heart, <laughs> I really desire to be a cheerful giver, cheerful giver. And, and, and be honest, God, I, I don't know if I really feel like it now, but, but in my heart, I want to give. Could you help me? And I think you're going to find it's incredible what God begins to do in your life, how he blesses you as you learn what it means to give, as you grow deeper in him, as you give generously. I know this fairly new Christian in our church who recently began trusting God with his finances, started tithing. And I don't know, I never asked them, but I'm guessing that they might not have exactly felt like doing it at first, but they decided to say, you know what, I don't know if I totally understand this, God, but, but I'm just going to trust you. And I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to obey you. And I'm just excited to see what God is going to do in their life as a result. And so David rejoices in verse 9. The leaders rejoice. The people rejoice. Why is that? I think it's because they understood about ownership and where everything comes from. And so David prays this incredible prayer in verses 10 and 11. Let's read it. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. We were singing about all of these concepts in the songs. All of these concepts, the eternal God praising him. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. For everything, it says there in the heart of verse 11, for everything in in heaven and earth is yours. And you're going to see that on the screen. Let's say that. Let's read that together. Let's read it together. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. And so David is reminding the people, and God's reminding us that God is the owner. Everything comes from him. And he has entrusted every one of us to manage some stuff, to manage it wisely, to manage it in a way that has generosity attached to it in a way that allows us to have fun in life and to enjoy life. But to understand clearly, it's not my stuff. Somebody else had this stuff before me, and somebody else is going to have that stuff after me, 
or it's going to end up in the dump. And it says in verse 14, David says this, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And so for David, it's not about this huge sacrifice. It's about this moment of great joy. And I would ask you, do you, do you know about this joy? The joy that comes from giving. And you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. When Deb and I give to the Lord, I'll look, you know, and, and it's a large amount. It's a high percentage. And for us, it's just really cool. It's just really cool to be able to say, God, I love you and I trust you. And there's this joy that attaches all the time realizing it's all God's anyways. The rest of verse 14 says, everything, he says, he reminds the people again, everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. And so David's saying, it's your kingdom, it's your majesty, my position, my power, my stuff, the only reason I have them is because of you, God. CEO of this Fortune 500 500 company pulls into a gas station. And it happened to be, he pulls up to one of the pumps that was actually full serve. So the attendant comes out and starts filling his tank with gas. And he walks in and he pays his bill. And as he looks out, he sees his wife talking to the guy that's finishing up doing the windows and putting the gas in. And when they're back in the car driving, he says, oh, what were the two of you talking about? And she says, well, before you and I met, I used to date him. And the CEO is feeling pretty proud of himself and pretty smug. And and he says, I bet you're thinking you're glad you married me, the Fortune 500 CEO, and not the servant station attendant. And she said, well, actually, no, what I was thinking is if I'd married him, he would have been the Fortune 500 CEO, and you would have been the gas station attendant. And see, stuff has this really seductive edge to it that makes me think I've got it made in the shade. I must really be something. And David is saying to us, he's reminding us, hey, where did I get my mind? Where did I get my ability to learn stuff, to be educated? Where did I get the skill sets that seem to have been seeded into my life? Where did I get my passion and my drive from, my giftedness, my whatever? He's saying, be reminded, everything comes as a gift from God. And so David says, I want to do everything I can to maximize everything I have in order to serve you, God to build your kingdom and bless your word. Think about that with me. He's saying, work hard, be creative, follow the passions God's put in your life that he leads you to. Do the best you can. Maximize it. In other words, invest it well. Save it properly. Have fun with it, but use it wisely. You know, pay your credit card bills in full at the end of the month, every month. That's just wise. 
And then you're able to just give generously to serve God, to build his kingdom, to bless your world. And David is saying, God is this lavishly generous God. God loves to give. He loves to entrust stuff to us. He wants us to enjoy it. But also be reminded that at the end of the day, he will say, what did you do with the stuff I entrusted you with? And so during this little time that we live on this earth, and it is a little time, relatively speaking, it's our privilege to not let stuff get a sort of a hold on our hearts, but to enjoy it, to use it wisely in keeping with how God directs us. And so that when God asks us that question, and he will ask that question, there will be rejoicing. So he wants to build, and he's showing us this pattern here. God wants to build this community of givers because he knows it's so good for you. He doesn't need our money. It's all his anyway. But he goes, man, I love these people so much, I'm going to let them partner with me in this stuff so they can experience that joy of giving. Now, some of you might be thinking, it's just possible. You know, I'm a student, or I'm on a fixed income, or I'm 41 years old and I just lost my job. I have no funds to give like David did. The fact of the matter is, you can give exactly like David did, no matter how much you have. That's not what's relevant. Because the Bible always teaches not equal giving, equal sacrifice equal sacrifice. It's not about the amount you give, but the amount of sacrifice. And so scripture would teach, and it teaches this before the law was established, when the law was established, and in the New Testament as well. A good place to start, God says, is is with a tithe, which is just 10% right off the top before taxes. And then you see what God does with that. It's amazing what he's doing and what he's done. And I was privileged to begin learning that when I was 10 years old, when I first came to Christ. But my parents were in their 30s at that point, and they began to discover this too. It's a wonderful thing. We're going to talk about this next week. It's a wonderful thing to teach your children this, because it just becomes a natural, normal, healthy part of life. But God can be trusted, I've found, with these things. He absolutely can. Verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. See, he wants this to go on. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the king. See, David knows the tendency of the human heart 
to drift back into slavery to stuff, to clutch it, to hoard it. And so he prays that way. And again, the truth is I can't make my heart generous on my own because I still have a lot of two-year-old in me. But God can. And so I challenge myself. I challenge the leaders of this church. I challenge everyone in this congregation to give sacrificially, joyfully to missions. We're on that little envelope there where it says global advance. You're giving to work all around the world, to give to the general fund, which we use to do ministry all around here. And when we have this attitude, it paves the way to a generous spirit to a voluntary, generous, sacrificial outlook on giving. And that, that is right on the money.